Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first Brave Spaces Roundtable discussion brought to you by Inclu LLC. Um, Inclu is a product equity and inclusion practitioner helping to build Brave Spaces for life. Um, and here with us today, we have some very, very esteemed guests. Um, we're going to ask them all to introduce themselves, tell us a bit about what drew them to their work. But before we get there, uh, who am I? I'm Destiny Foxcano. <laughs> I'm Chief Operating Officer of Inclu, and I'm going to kick it over to founder of Inclu, Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi, to get us started on those introductions. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Destiny. So happy today to join all of you. And we are welcoming Jennifer McClanahan Flint and Mashika Allgood. Before I introduce myself, I would love to invite our two uh, participants to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit more about what they do and what drew them to the work that they do. I'll popcorn it over to Mashika. My name is Mashika Allgood. I am an AI ethicist and founder of Ally Consulting LLC. Our firm's uh, goal and purpose is to help make a more literate or generally literate AI society. I think a lot of the difficulties we have with AI is that people don't know what's going on, so they can't protect themselves or others. And so that's really the focus of my ethics work and the focus of Ally Consulting. I got into AI kind of randomly. I happened to work at a company that shall we say, enabled this current AI age that we're in uh, through uh, the creation of a pivotal piece of hardware that all, nearly all AI is run on. I didn't actually work in AI at that company, but I got bored with my actual job and started learning about AI and was well positioned to learn from some really um, well-known and well-respected experts. The issue of AI ethics came up almost immediately upon me learning about AI. And I, I spent a little time trying to do work within big tech uh, around the issues, but then realized that uh, the appetite wasn't necessarily there. And the way to address this issue would be a bit more direct if we had more people in the room. And so then it became this, this issue of educating people outside of tech about the tech to allow them to do the things that they normally do to advocate, you know, protect themselves you know, move for laws and, and social norms to be incorporated into what we do. So that's a bit of my journey. Shameless plug, uh, my ally company, part of what we do is put out educational resources. November 1st, our first course, Introductory AI for Legal Professionals course, will be available. Uh, a series of three introductory courses that will be available uh, November 1st, December 1st, January 15th. Uh, and that will kick off our educational thrust. Uh, we'll also be having courses for educators, medical professionals, government procurement officers, and just a lot of different people who are in, in spaces to work around AI. So I am shameless in that plug. I've worked very hard on these materials. Uh, so I'll just go ahead and put that out there at the intro. But I, I'd like to thank Dede and Destiny for inviting me. I'm really excited to have a conversation with Jennifer and Dede and Destiny. And try to get a, a, I don't know, a, a different and interesting perspective on these issues. Thank you so much for that, Mashika. We'll bounce it right over to you, Jennifer. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Dede. Ashika, so interesting. I look forward to connecting with you afterwards. I, we work with lots of law firms, so I could imagine some intersectionality going on there. And Destiny, thank you so much for this great uh, introduction and having me here. I am Jennifer McClanahan Flint. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Leverage to Lead. I started my career uh, on Wall Street and then moved to law firm management. So I managed all the day-to-day -day operations in major law firms and Northern California practices for global law firms. And um, in that work, I spent a lot of time with individual partners, helping them build their practice and their book of business, grow their work. And as I was always having these marketing um, finance, billing, what do we do to make yourself more profitable conversations? I was never having them with women. I was always with white men. Um, in 2010, 2011, you know, the last firm I was at wanted to have a women's initiative program. I said, I've got a curriculum. I'm ready, ready to help them. And they uh, were like, well, we just want to do a brown bag lunch. And I was like, all right, I'm going to start my own practice. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Head in hand. So I really started working with women in law and helping them build a pathway to partnership. And that work, of course, expanded out of law because there are women who are having the same challenges everywhere. Um, and then in 2013, after the death of Trayvon Martin, and really, like, it was my own awakening with Black Lives Matter. Not that I didn't know I was Black up to this point, but to really think about my identity and why was I often the only Black woman in a room? And what did that mean? And what did I know and understand that also could be so helpful to other women of color? I was like on a mission to work with black women. <laughs> I was like going to find them, although it was hard. It was harder than you think um, it would be. But as I started really developing my understanding around equity and inclusion and the specific needs for people of color, um, I was helping them really expand their career set and organizations started reaching out to me because they would have people of color in their organizations that they thought were going to sue them. And they would say, could you come in and help us, you know, manage the situation? You know, we have an employee and there's a communication problem. It was like, oh, you have a black woman and you have bias. Okay. So let me go in and like help you out. So that work really evolved in 2019. I partnered with MJ Mathis and we really started to build values-based work for organizations and really examining the values in an organization to understand what about your values, whether they're aspirational or in practice, is really creating exclusion and what could be creating inclusion. And so the values excavation work has really expanded, as you can imagine, um, over the last two years. And um, But my heart, and as Dede knows, my heart is really doing the career and executive consulting with um individuals and people helping them to really shift the paradigm of what's possible for them. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Jennifer. Um, and before I get into uh, my introduction, I just want to introduce our first in a series of conversations that we're hoping to have over the next several months, years. Well, there's no end date in sight, um, but we welcome you to uh, include Brave Spaces Roundtable. I am Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi. Um, I am an ethical technologist and social scientist. 
um, and I have 20 years of experience in my field. I leverage international professional experience and unique lens as a polyglot from a multicultural background um, as I create strategies for individuals and organizations committed to investing in, equ in equitable and accessible product development and design processes. I got into this work because of who I am. I was born in West Africa. Um, I was born with a chronic illness, uh, disability, um, and I was raised in, um, in an environment where I got to use multiple languages. I was um, adopted transracially, so I grew up with a lot of cultures, languages, um, and um, a perspective of how things work around the world um, as part of my day-to-day -day and quickly realized that there weren't products out on the market that had people like me in mind. They weren't designed with me in mind. And I decided if not me, then who else is going to come down um, this path and create something that's going to be workable for me and all the other people in the world who are just like me, who straddle geographies, who straddle um, languages, who straddle um, different types of identities depending on the context that they're in. And so, um, through a, a bit of trial and error, found out that um, the work that I do in terms of helping um, organizations and individuals understand what it means to build with a diverse world in mind rather than for them, um, started to come to the conclusion that the work that I want to do is creating um, brave spaces where we can be vulnerable, where we do think about the people who are left behind, who are at the margins, um, and bring them to the center of all that we do. Um, and that is, um, it's still my reality. Um, that hasn't shifted. Um, there's still a huge need for it. And um, as we will continue to discuss uh, over time, but as technology continues to change and improve, and as we create new types of emerging technologies, we need to have um um, more um, focused towards building relationships whereby we're bringing into the center of what we're building the, the potential positive impacts that we can leave behind. Um, as technology uh, changes and increases, we need to be able to bring back the human element um, into what we do. All right, so tall title. Uh, Mashika and Jennifer, would you be so kind as to tell me a little bit more about um, what you thought the initial need um, you were hoping to fill as you worked in, um, in um, uh, developing tech, so AI and ML um, for you, Mashika and Jennifer, coaching as well as well, individual coaching and business coaching. What was the initial need that you were hoping to fill um, and has this changed in 2021? You know, the goal of um, civil rights is for people who identi whose identity is differs from whiteness, right? The physical and cultural identities of whiteness, the responsibility we have is to assimilate, right? And this is, I think, you know, listening to you talk about the accents and the bots, right? It kind of goes back to this idea that there is English um, and our responsibility is to assimilate to that English. Um, and that brings me, Day Day, to the question that you were asking regarding, you know, what is brought me to the work and really, you know, 
the thing that I want is to pe for people to actually leverage their difference. You know, when I'm working with um, leaders in an organization, um, when I'm working with black women who are trying to ascend in their careers, um, they think the path forward is to show up in a way that keeps them safe. Um, and keeping you safe often means that the best of you doesn't come with you. And so the work is really to build the audacity to say, no, this, these parts of my identity, these parts that make me different, these things that don't fit in are actually what you need to continue to be successful. Right? You need me to show up differently in order for us to think differently, to do things differently, and for me to give you my best ideas. You know, if I'm spending my energy in the day covering, I, can't, I don't have the time or energy um, to dig deep into my creative mind um, and to bring forth, um, you know, what it is um, that I know to be true that could really impact what we're doing here. And I think for people of color, like we have spent our life, if we have been in predominantly white spaces, and by white, I mean the construct of whiteness, necessarily the identity of everyone in those spaces. Like you have, you have spent your years knowing, identifying, understanding, feeling your way through a tough situation. Um, so your ability to be acutely aware of what's going on in a room in any particular time is a skill. I think, you know, Mashika, it's like your mother didn't have to say anything. Her eyes said it all. We've been reading eyes since, you know, however long, right? So our capacity to know, understand, interpret, know where we stand, understand what's going on over there, um, combined with our capacity, our curiosity, um, the fact that we probably have always had to be creative in some sense to be able to move ahead um, and to show up in a space that doesn't always want us. Um, I really, my my whole goal in life is there space for people um, just to be so that they can do their best work. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jennifer. It really brings to mind um, for me why I continue to do the work that I do. And despite the difficulties that I have showing up in my difference um, with, um, with my difference and understanding that it is, or I guess it's all the aspects of my difference, difference, well, anywho, difference with an A instead of an E, as the post the postmodernists like to say, that allows me to be able to actually be creative and actually be able to walk teams and individuals and organizations step by step through a process through which they can understand truly what it means to build relationships with the communities that they're going to be impacting. First, to understand those communities exist and then be able to actually have a non-extractive relationship with them so that they're building something that's going to be useful. And in all of the ways that I show up, I show up as someone who with um, accessibility issues, like physical accessibility issues and geographic accessibility issues. I'm someone who speaks different languages. And so when I interact with someone, I try to figure out how can I communicate better with this person based on my experiences of being um, a member of different communities around the world. But in all of the ways that I show up, I still show up in fear. And that's something that I struggle with every single day. 
And like part of part of the reason that I do the work that I do is because I'm not represented and other people like me are not represented. And so by stepping into the center, I have to be able to feel as though it is a space that is going to be welcoming enough of me to be able to help shepherd them to a place where they can then understand what is being said to them, right? Whether that's in a different language, that whether that's in a different format than they're used to seeing or hearing or experiencing. But every time I do that, I come into that space in fear. And I don't believe that much has changed for me or for the organizations that I work with in 2021, as opposed to when I started down this journey, except that I know this work needs to be done. And I know that in doing so, I'm going to be able to at least have relationships with people like you, Jennifer, with people like you, Destiny, with people like you, Mashika. Even knowing that, it's still difficult every single time. And every single time I see some news article about how some so-and-so company has, again, perpetuated systemic injustice, I roll my eyes and I'm like, why didn't you talk to me first? Right? Right? That's, that's what comes to mind. I'm like, you should have talked to me. Come on now. There's so much work that we could do, so much more improvement that we could see. But at the same time, I don't actually want to step into that because I'm like, this is just, it's so much work and it's overwhelming and who knows where the end is going to be. Um, but before we move on to the next one, I would love to invite Destiny also to of um, what her initial inspiration was and, and what she's trying to achieve as well. Wow. <laughs> it's hard to follow up all y'all. <laughs> I think a similar in the same thread of um, Jennifer and in this kind of soul searching way of I've always known I was like a kind of connector. And so and I've had I have different types of friends, all different colors, all abilities and all of this. And I'm just like, hey, you're nice to me. You're fun. Like, let's have a good time. And so like, part of that is kind of what, what pushes me forward as well, because I just feel this need to ensure that we all can have these spaces where we can share our different perspectives, whether we agree or not, learn something new and push some change forward. And I think last year with the murder of George Floyd, particularly, there was definitely this huge social justice, social, uh, civil justice warrior that was just like, oh, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> that just like burst even more furiously inside of me. And so this need has always been there. And, and hearing you all talk, I kind of am reminded of when that happened last year and I was speaking to like my mother and my auntie and they're like, oh, we did that whole civil justice thing like 30 some 50 years ago, like nothing's changed. And I'm like, well, we're going to keep trying and we got to keep going. And I'm pretty sure, you know, 30 years down the line, we might have like another sort of revolution. But that's I think that's just human nature, right? We're always forcing change in some way. And sometimes it is more painful, more dramatic and more at the forefront than it was in the past, but it is always progressing towards something, some ideal, I think, that we we all would like to have eventually. So this is what um, powers me to keep doing this type of work every day alongside you, Dr. Dede, at INCLU. And this work has also just opened my eyes a lot more to what has and hasn't changed. So we have like what has changed in 2021. And I'm like, 
oh, I have some kind of jaded friends that are like, girl, you're still you're still like <laughs> steam rolling along, but nothing's changed. And I'm like, I know, but I got to keep going forward. And and I think when we keep going forward too, we have to remember to just take time to see those milestones that we have actually hit because it, it is so easy in this in this work to just feel jaded like oh another company that's making billions of dollars is not gonna t- you know take our advice on their horrible extractive tactics in order to actually do better in the world and also um, make better products in the world all right on <laughs> and as we continue hurling towards this future where more and more is automated and less and less difference and and diversity are taken into consideration, what pitfalls, um, what negative impacts or consequences are you currently seeing and experiencing? You know, let's say the fear. I think um, the fear that it won't change, the fear that it will change, the fear that I'm will be sacrificed as part of the change. I think we... um, you know, sometimes I, when I'm working with clients, I get it. I, you know, I'm, am an optimist. I live in a, I have, I have learned optimism. I, if you've read the book, I'm very like in the unrealistic optimistic, optimistic frame of that book. But I, I say to myself, okay, so if you don't do it, what, like, where will you be? Like, what is your option? Where, what, like, what else are you going to do? Um, and I think the, you know, the stubbornness of white supremacy feels um, like there's just no way forward. And we still do move forward. I mean, I have to say I'm in Destiny's uh, camp. But I remember in 2015, I have a blog, um, com under resources. You'll see we have a blog. You can sign up for the blog if you want to read some of our writing. But in 2015, I, you know, I was writing about Colin Kaepernick and the flag. And I was like, oh my, I wrote it. And then I wouldn't publish it because I was like, oh, my God, you know, my mother's going to read it. My boss is going to read it like everybody's going to read it. And I felt really vulnerable you know, in such a public way and the retribution that may or may not befall me and my family. And I think, you know, in some ways, oh, you know, who am I? I think it was overblown. No one came and found me after I've been writing about race now for seven years. And I don't think it's extreme, right? Because sometimes um, I don't want to say the randomness, but there is no protection, um, you know, from being black in many ways. So I think it was a fair concern, and it's not that I don't ever hold the concern, but um, I also, you know, I went to, back in 2016, the White Privilege Conference, and it was just really in that conference when I, you know, not that I thought racism would change in my lifetime, but like it won't even change in my daughter's lifetime. Like it was like one of those really clarifying moments about where not just our country, but our world is on racism. And I said, well, you got a choice, right? You got a choice. And so I think the idea, knowing it's difficult and that it's sometimes dangerous and it's, there's the fear, um, really is a pitfall. And I will say, I'm going to use my Tim Howard 
um, analogy. He was the um, goalie for the men's soccer, U.S. men's soccer team many years ago, and he has Tourette's syndrome. And so he would, uh, he was, um, set the record back at the time for the most saves in a soccer game, which talks about the level of play for the U.S. team, but he was a great uh, goalie. And the question was how, when he is in these very high stress moments, when he's really feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, where am I at? What am I going to do? How does he not have the Tourette syndrome come up? How do they not rise up? And he had to really reframe and say, like, this is the level I want to play at. This is the work that I want to do. This is where I am. And when I am feeling this feeling, it's because I am where I want to be. It's not an affliction for me. And I think for me, it's, you know, when at the level that I do the work now, which I wouldn't have said back in 2015, the people I'm working with now, I would ever work with. Um, there are moments when I'm like, I don't know, I'm going to talk to you. I, I don't, what, if, what can I even say? And I know that that's the point of the work I'm doing. That's the level I want to be doing the work at because that's where I personally can have the most impact. Um, and so it was really reframing that idea um, that the fear I'm feeling is because I'm actually being challenged to do the work that I said I want to do. Yeah, so I'm a little different than y'all. <laughs> I'm not an optimist. I My fear is different because I already know that I don't fit in these spaces. Like I, I've already been crushed in that way. I was a lawyer to start. How many of us are lawyers? No, 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 I went to tech. How many of us are in tech? So I've already had my career dreams crushed. Like I've already been through all of that over and over again. So that no longer is really part of what motivates me. I mean, beating myself is a, is a thing. <laughs> but like trying to get acceptance in spaces that clearly don't want me there I mean, you can only do that for so long before you have to tap out or just, you know, lose it. You know what I mean? Tap out, conform, or lose it. And so I'm, I'm not in in those spaces, right? So I've I've tapped out. I've done something different. So me, my fear is around getting the things done that I want to get done. You know, my fear is around being putting out the the level and the quality of stuff that I want to do. And so when I'm in these spaces, like I think the original question was about, you know. What negativity do you see? I mean, honestly, I, I work in AI. Like everything you hear right now is some level of negativity. Like I could run a list for you if you want, but I, I don't really see that there's a, a lot of value in that because I mean, that's just more beat down, right? Like when I first started making posts on LinkedIn, it was trying to inform people about the negative aspects of AI, but it hurts. You know what I'm saying? To see it and to say it over and over in new and novel ways. And so it was it was sucking at my soul. So I, I was like, I, I have to do something different. And so I may talk about a negative consequence of AI, but I'm I'm framing it in a way of how could we have done this different? Like when I talk about compass, I don't just talk about how horrible that was for for society. I talk about if we had used the AI as a as a human augmented tool to give us information that we could then act on separately as opposed to a an autom- a human automated tool, a decision-making tool, then it could have had a positive impact, right? Like getting that information could be positive for society, you know, as opposed to just ceding control to the AI to make bad decisions based on that information. Like my thing is, I don't believe AI is suited 
for decision making. That's not what it is. Statistics. You don't make decisions off of you take statistics and based on those statistics, you make a decision. But the statistics are never the decision in and of themselves. Right. And so I think we just fundamentally misuse the tech and people do that purposefully. Right. So for me, I've been in tech. I recognize that they're not interested in this. Right. And so it's where do you put your efforts? Like, how do you, you know, turn this negative? You know, how do you find a way to make it positive? And that to me is, you know, I, I listened to the prime minister of the Bahamas. She is amazing. And the way that she sees the world is cut and dry and clear. And she articulates it in that way. That is a leader who can bring about change. I recently started following the new commissioner of the EEOC in the U.S. And he's given talks all around the world. You know, the, the, the negatives and positives of AI and HR systems. Right now, mind you, we need to have a conversation to to better understand like how he sees and how he frames that negative and positive. But for him to even be having those conversations, the commissioner of the EEOC to be having those conversations is a huge win. It's it's a massive step in the right direction. And I, I've watched him over time have various conversations, and it's real, you know. And so for me, it's more. I'm not trying to change the people who are you know fat cats off of the exploitative nature of the technology you're not you're not going to change their minds like that, that's just not it's people still fighting the, in the south you know the war of northern aggression like you're not going to change the minds of the people who are benefiting off of a biased system you have to change the structures around them to limit their power and their ability to do negative things and so that's my focus so that's why i'm focusing on law on on policymakers on the people as a whole, because we're all, you know, the buttresses of our society. Like we're all the people, you know, who can step in and, and check power, right? Right now, we're not in a position to do that. You know, the people don't understand. You know what I mean? So we're not in a position to, to argue and fight. Like, yes, we understood Black Lives Matter. We know how to get outside and march. But do we know how to argue against having AI facial recognition in this particular context or to purchase it in our in our companies or to allow it to do certain things like that's something an individual person can do in the scope of their job it's like everyday activism you know what i mean and so like for me trying to find a different audience to have these conversations has been liberating because you cannot beat your head up against a wall harder than i have beat mine up against the systems in this country and still have a head. Like, it is not possible. Like, I, I bought all the things to bear, the education, you know, the the, the, the speech, the look, the, all the things. And so I reached a point in my life where I was like, I've done all the things right, and it's not working. It's not me. <laughs> it's the system. And so I need to find a way around or through or change within this system or of the system as a whole in order to allow myself the life that I have been promised and that I worked really hard to have because this shit ain't getting it, right? And so that's the same kind of way that I approach the idea of changing, you know, of changing AI to be more ethical. You have to change the systems around it because you're not, Zuckerberg ain't going to change shit. He's making plenty of money. Clearly his focus is on making more money. Like when you get to a certain level and you haven't made enough money, it's a sickness. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, what do you call, um, what do you call, uh, it's an addiction, right? It's something that you cannot stop, even if it is reasonable for you to stop. 
So why are we going after addicts and asking them to change their behavior? We need to start stripping them <laughs> of their drugs, right? Like that's how we treat any other kind of addict. And so that's kind of how I approach it. I'm not overly optimistic. You know, I don't believe in the power of changing hearts and minds. I believe in changing structures. I believe in changing laws. You know, I believe in, in changing regulations. I believe in suing the hell out of people until they figure shit out. And so that's that's how I'm approaching all of this. And so it's it's less an optimistic. It's more of a what the hell can I do right now to push people who don't want to go? I would just like to clarify, Mashika, I don't think we're that far off. My hope and optimism isn't necessarily that we're going to go in and change Facebook in any way, shape or form, but that those of us who think that we don't have the agency to do something different, we do. So it's not about what we're doing to influence people who are not interested or share our values, but that we can stand out and say these are our values and work in a place, in an organization, in a frame, whether it's our own, whether it's someone else, whether it's with conjunc in conjunction with someone else, where they value what it is that we have to offer and what we're bringing to the table, that we value what we, who we are and what we do enough so that we don't feel like our only choice is to compromise and assimilate. So just to be super clear, I, it's not optimism that I think um, if we all work hard enough, Zuckerberg's going to have a change of heart. <laughs> just to, I, <laughs> but, I, but I also, when it, when it comes to, I mean, once again, like I've been thrown out of two, three careers at this point. So like the, the idea that because we come to the table properly and we come to the table valuing ourselves, like, Dede sat on a panel, I think this was the same panel you sat on that we had at NVIDIA, where we had someone come in and she was talking about, you know, DEI efforts and, you know, moving up in the company. And she kept talking about, like, uh, if you have, what is it, when you don't believe in yourself, even though you should, what do they call it? Yeah. Yes. Imposter she was syndrome. talking about, you know, her whole thing was on getting over imposter syndrome. I was like, I have four degrees and a mental card. I'm not an imposter. So when I have my shit together, now what? What's the next step? She told me to read her book. <laughs> like she had nothing. She had nothing. She was like, you you, you buy my book. I was like, are you kidding? This is where we are. So like, you know, I get, I get getting us ready for the party, right? But we also have to recognize, even if you're ready for the party, the host may not want you at the table. And you don't and need you to stay. To to walk away. <laughs> you need to you go need find to a place. That, yes, yes. So I'm just saying, I think position to do that too. You know what I mean? Yes. So I think it's incumbent of us to make sure that we take care of ourselves financially. I don't think there's a, I mean, there are many of us that we're working to make sure that we have the financial capacity to have choice, but you have to actually know you want choice. I agree with that. Dr. Dede, did you have anything to, to add here? Um, I was actually waiting for you to add a little something. Uh -huh. <laughs> <We're so polite. laughs> well, I, I almost wanted to just round up what I'm hearing here. And it, it, what I'm really hearing is like, whether we're often optimists or not, that all of us were not afraid of saying the quiet, la the quiet part out loud, because <laughs> that is often what we need to have said the most. And also, I get this feeling like, you know, whether whatever path we take, we're almost being like, whistleblowers for humanity <laughs> like, 
just like throw out a quote there because like it really is you both are right Mashika and, and Jennifer like whatever function we choose to be in especially like to, for making sure we're feeling good ourselves we're not gonna let someone like put push us out and put us in the corner we're gonna like carve out our own space and just keep going and I guess maybe that's where my optimism is it's like yeah <laughs> I don't need to be at this company or that company I, like I know who I am I know what I've got to say and I know that it's valid and I'm gonna keep pushing because the, the world needs it yes very well said and I think for me so much of what Destiny and Jennifer you say resonates with me to the point that I want to call myself an optimist, but I know myself better. I am an unending, a never-ending romantic and optimist, but to a certain point, like I'm optimistic about other people's behavior. So Mashika, I find myself in the situation where I'm trying to change hearts and minds rather than being like, oh wait, you've been here before. Oh wait, no, this isn't deja vu. Like you've, you've lived this before. This is another round on the merry-go-round. It's another turn. And it might be time to get off, but I'm like, but no, I can change these horses into elephants or I can change these elephants into goats or I don't know, bunnies. What kind of animals are many? Whatever. Anyway, I'm always trying to change hearts and minds rather than being like, okay, let's take a step back and actually consider what we've done, all of the steps that we've taken to get here and think more about the structures that need to change. I consistently, and Jennifer will probably let you know this too, I consistently start to think, oh wait, no, no, the, 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 the piece of this equation that is wrong is me because I'm the common denominator across all of these things, but that's not the point. The point isn't that I'm wrong. I'm not miscoded or like an X is an X is an X, right? Like whatever it's supposed to be is going to always be that. But place the X in a particular algorithm and the algorithm changes, the equation changes, the outcome changes. And I want to be the person who is making the outcome or the, 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 the equation change. The area that I think that we should be focusing on, and I want to bring it back to what you said before, limiting the structures around the people limiting change. How do you approach that? Like, how can we talk about the things that we want to see in the people, in the organizations, in the, in the individuals that we're working with? How do we go about changing the structures around them so that we can eventually get to a place where we're changing hearts and minds of the people who actually wanted their hearts and minds changed? So I'm, I don't have the answer. I'm not the expert, but I am going to just throw out that if we could stop talking about imposter syndrome, because imposter syndrome means that you're trying to be part of a structure that has no use for you or no need for you. And so people throw this, it kind of uh, like, well, it, you aren't an imposter. You are yourself, but you are not a white guy. And that's okay. That the goal isn't for you to be more white so that you can do X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think really, Mashika, your, your comment about the structure is really, like, to me, it just stands in relief of this idea of imposter syndrome. It's like, you don't even understand how caught up you are in a structure that will never serve you, which is why it's feeling like an imposter so much. So anyway, I just, I don't, I am not, um, 
we talk about systems in our work a lot because white supremacy is a system. So you have to be able to have another system in place of that system. Um, it's, it's a new reality, but it's not like a, it's not necessarily flatness. Um, but when you talk about systems and AI, I would love to hear your point of view since that is definitely not my, uh, expertise. Um, so for me, and I, I fully agree with that because I was a big old square peg in that round hole and I, I could wear as much around as I wanted, <laughs> but that peg was still square. You know, I am fundamentally who I am no matter how I look or present, right? But as, as to the issue of structures, so for me, you know, we, we, I've had this conversation and I, I, I try to be very clear about there's this mentality when I talk to techies and it's like, you know, this is broken. They're like, we'll find something better and we'll go with it, which means we're going to continue to do the broken thing until you find a way to replace it. And I just, I don't think that's proper framing. You know, I don't think it's on the oppressed to find a tool to be unoppressed, right? Like, I, I think that's how that framing goes. And it, it's, I'm constantly trying to push back against that kind of framing because it's what we all hear. It's the, it's the general construct around things. You have to replace a system with a system, which, yes, to some degree is true, but you can build that new system over time. Like, it doesn't have to be a swap and replace, right? And I, I think you, clearly recognize that part. <laughs> so like, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to hit on you for that, but I'm just, I just had this conversation yesterday with someone and was like, he's like, well, when you find something better, I was like, so we just going to keep doing raggedy foolishness until I, as an individual, find a way to fix the entire, like, that's just stupid. Like it's, it's unreasonable. Right. And it's just a way to blow you off. Right. And so I think, you know, the focus should be first on limitations, right? So I look back on how we did uh, worker safety, right? You know, there were no laws around worker safety. Or we can go even further back. We can go to uh, when Hershey first, no, no, it was Heinz. When Heinz first uh, proposed that we have, what is it, the FDA, right? The Food and Drug Administration. He came out with that because back in the day, people were using all kind of adulterated materials to create ketchup. And it was affecting his sales, right? And also it was affecting his branding because people, you know, were buying ketchup and dying because it was made out of, you know, whatever, you know, salt, salt shavings and whatever, right? Uh, and so he's like, we need regulation in order to allow spaces for innovation, in order to allow, you know, people to make benefit if they do positive, you know, positive things and create things in positive ways. So, you know, when you look at, you know, how the Food and Drug Administration came about, when you look at you know, how we moved with worker safety and product safety over time. Like we've gone through these inflection points within our history about the products that we create. And so I don't think AI is any different, right? So you start out trying to figure out what are the harms? What are the incentives, right? So I was just reading an article where the gentleman was talking about the difference between, you had to look at, where did I put this article? Because it was awesome. I'm sorry, you're going to have to like, Ah, affordances and incentives, right? And so he was like, you have to look at what the technology allows you to do. Like, what is it replacing? What is it making easier? So like uh, how the internet makes it easier to communicate, right? So that's an affordance. It's, you don't have to go out and buy a stamp. You don't have to look up an address. You don't have to, you can just send an email, send a chat, send a message, right? So it affords us ease and communication, right? 
So what are the incentives that come with that affordance? Well, the incentives are, you know, instead of only complaining when something went horribly, horribly wrong, because, you know, it took so much for me to complain. Now I complain for everything that even slightly aggravates me, right? So you got all these people who are like, these men, oh my God, you know, this is the worst product ever. And it just was really an aggravation, right? So you got to look at like how, you know, what the incentives are and how people are likely to use the tech, right? So if we start looking at tech from that lens, you know, what are the affordances from a social media, right? And then what are the incentives, right? So the affordance is anybody can have an opinion. So what are the incentives? Anybody's going to have an opinion. And if that's a negative opinion, then I've never got to you know, put it out into the world before. So I'm really going to be pushing it because now people are listening to me. Right. And so you, you see the affordance and the incentive don't really seem to be aligned with, with social values or societal values. Right. So then what's the last part of this? Well, what are the limitations? Are there any limitations that can help protect against the worst abuses of this new system? Right. So when you look at technology within that frame, then you end up in a situation where, you know, you're not just trying to outlaw things that you think are bad. You know, you're not trying to necessarily replace an entire social structure through technology, which we can't tech everything. Right. Like a lot of things that are wrong with society are wrong with society and we need to fix society. But what we can do is try to figure out these most egregious use cases for the technology and, and stop that. Right. Like there are laws with product liability about you putting out an inherently dangerous product. Well, that's the same kind of mentality. What is this good for? You know, how is it most likely going to be used? And what are the worst abuses of it? And we create laws in order to protect you from that, right? So how is it any different for technology? It isn't. But because tech is new, people think everything needs to be new. We need whole new laws and whole new areas of this. And we have to look at this in a whole new lens. We have structures for this. And so my my thing is we can move pretty quickly to address a lot of these abuses if we're willing to use the structures that are there and see them in new and creative ways. So I give Elizabeth Warren a lot of credit for you know being the first person to talk about breakout big tech. We've gone through that before in this country where we had a few people basically operating as oligarchs and then a president and an administration come in and break them up and try to, you know, level the playing field. It didn't become completely even. And we we took our eye off the ball. And clearly they have clawed back what they had and more. But it's not that we haven't gone through this process before. We have structures to handle these processes. We just happen to be in a situation right now where our government is complicit with or a lot of the people in our governmental structures are complicit with, you know, the people who are making this money through exploiting tech. And while they are in bed with each other, you know, there isn't, there, there's, it's too heavy of a power on one side of the scale. And so once again, that brings me back to why I think we need more people involved in the conversation. We need lawyers to balance the scale. That's what the law does. The law balances the scales. And we need the people and people power to balance the scale. So when I look at, you know, limitations and creating structures, I'm not necessarily talking about forming new parts of government. That may be helpful, and I'm not saying it won't. But for me, I feel like we have levers that we can pull if we look at, you know, creatively, you know, look at our history and see what we have that we can use today. I know I already spoke, but I just want to also add, you know, that part of our work is about the people structures, right? The way that you 
you partner with people in your organizations. And, um, I think it, that it just makes me think like in order to have the lawyers and the people that can do the work to counter where we are right now is that we have to actually think about the humans, right? Giving the humans the capacity to understand that they, it's, it's, it is their gifts that will make a difference. Um, gifts that they have at this point felt um, aren't valued, right? And so it's really how do you change the perspective so this firm will do the work that needs to be done, right? And give them the support so it's not the same firm and these people are dead, tired, and beat out. And I, you know, we have um, 20 years of human resources experience on our team and we really go in to talk about how do you build structures that support people, um, not just business. And I, on that same note, there are there are now um, people are creating uh, processes and structures around how to bring humans, you know, users, end users, people into the development process, into the design process, not just human centered design, you know, where it's like, oh, but but humans as the key. So like, as opposed to, you know, an AI pipeline and human in the loop, a human pipeline and AI in the loop, you know, so starting with the people and what your problem is that we want to solve, what are your structures that you have, what are your systems, and then where would AI fit, if it fits at all, you know, and how can we make this seamless within how you see the world and how you do these things. So that process is happening, but I think that your work is a foundation for that process because it helps companies understand how to work with people in general, right? Because that that is not, right? Like that is not a core competency of most companies. They don't actually know how to work with their customers. They, they hire other people. I work with the customer, right? They hire other people to handle that business. And so bringing, you know, individual people into the design process, like people outside of the company, you know, who are stakeholders, you know, bringing them in and, and having an ability to, to communicate with them and understand their ideas and bring it into your processes that is a competency that most companies don't have. So I think the companies who are going through your process and who are learning how to do that, even internally with their own people, are forming a foundation that they can use to then create better AI over time. Absolutely. And that is why Jennifer and Leverage to Lead and Include, shameless plug, work very well together as partners because Leverage to Lead brings them in gets them started on that hard work of figuring out how to build those relationships, how to have those conversations, how to actually invest in their people. And then we can come in and support with additional data points that can help them um, figure out how to get to their, their stated values and stated goals by bringing in diverse voices and perspectives into the product development process. So we're having an amazing time. We only have another few minutes left. And so I would like to wrap it hopefully on a more um, positive note. And we're already headed in that direction anyway. But overall, as we're thinking about moving beyond 2021 in the areas that we work in, how can organizations work toward long-term sustainable change in AI and ML, in um, people management, in investing in their, their employees and in, in people and programs and products. 
I mean, I think our, I think you're right. Our conversation is really leading to its systems and its people. It's not either or, um, you know, we're working with an organization that has decided that they, they started, they want to hire more people of color and we're like, okay, but they're not going to stay in your all white firm. So what else would you like to do? Right. And so really going from really from the bottom up and to understand culturally why they don't know people of color. Right. I mean, and they, the leadership was willing to say, if this is what we want and it's important to our work, we are the block. It's not this system out there. That's the block. Oh, there's a system, right. That has, that is enabling us to show this up this way, but we are still showing up this way. Um, and to really hold the accountability and the responsibility for that. And then to understand if we're going to change, that means we have to question everything. Because everything that we've created is based on a system of, of exclusion. And we thought we were great because of it. And it's we're super profitable. Um, things are really good. And so they had to be willing to really ask themselves constantly, you know, am I looking at the mirror of who I say I want to be when I make this decision? Um, and they've, I mean, it is faith restoring because they've been really deep in the process um, of doing that work. So I, I think the, the difficulty with uh, AI and ML is the tech is immature and so are the leaders, right? So, and I, I say that, I say that because I've had a couple conversation uh, CEOs and about CEOs and their only interest is the tech. The tech is so cool. I want to build a cool thing. You know, the tech is my focus. I'm a tech company. I want to deal with the tech. Well, you can't just have dessert. You put it out there into the world and it's affecting people every day. You can't say I want a single focus on the tech because that's what tech companies too do without acknowledging that tech companies are fundamentally altering the world that we live in in not very good ways. And so I think there's a, a level of immaturity amongst our tech elite and the idea that we can hold this knowledge amongst ourselves because we are the meritocracy, right? And so we're going to keep it, we're going to hold it, we're going to hoard it because that is our value and we're not going to share it with other people. So I feel like that is something I can personally <laughs> address, which is why I'm jumping in on that end. But I think there's just a level of maturity that has to happen within the tech itself and within the tech leaders. So I think the law and getting sued enough will mature tech leaders faster than anything that we can do as individual citizens. But I think that when it comes to maturing the tech itself, it's an issue of, you know, we need to educate engineers outside of the silo that they're educated in. Engineering is not just a technical skill anymore. You are social engineering. And so they need to learn philosophy. They need to learn political science. They need to learn social science and literature, they need to be given the tools to understand their impact on the world, as opposed to just code this thing. And are you coding enough for the day? And I, I think we, we have to mature in how we educate uh, our engineers. And then I think when it comes to tech companies, once again, you know, we need to look at the structures that are in place around how they release their technology. You know, there, there are some fundamental things that you can look at in a data set to determine, you know, if it's biased. There are things you can look at uh, in, in the features to determine, are you likely to have the outcomes that you're intending to have? There are things we can look at in the feedback loop 
Like, who did I create this tech for as opposed to who is getting it? And then there's just, you know, nobody wants to be at the wheel. Nobody wants to admit that they're steering society with their technology. And so they're just kind of, you know, if I don't say I'm creating Skynet, then I'm not creating Skynet, right? But we are clearly creating Skynet. (laughs) So, like, we need to be honest about what we're doing. And someone needs to say, this is where we want to go as a tech company. This is the future that we see and start building towards that future as opposed to just, you know, claiming to be unbiased in that future and creating, you know, whatever can be created, which is at the time is the most exploitative stuff that we can find. So I think there just needs to be an honesty, which tech employees are doing their best to require that now. And that's been pushing the conversation forward. So I, I, there's a lot of different ways that we can move forward, but, you know, they all kind of push towards the same thing, you know, some sort of honesty in what we're doing and why we're doing it and understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it, which I think is fundamentally just not there. And an opening of who was involved in the conversation, whether you want to hire them into your 2% or not, you know, an, an opening, you know, where people who are not in the tech industry are still being involved in the tech conversation because the time for building healthcare without doctors, the time for building education apps without teachers, the time for building legal apps without lawyers is over. You know, the wild, wild west needs to end. We need to recognize that you need an expert in every field that you involve yourself in as a tech company. And we need to require that at a professional level, you know, so The American Medical Association needs to get involved. The American Bar Association needs to get involved. The American Realtors Association needs to to get involved. All of these professions that are being affected need to get involved and make sure that they have a say in how, you know, their industry is being changed by this technology. So I think the way we move forward is, is to not focus so heavily on changing the tech companies from the inside, which I appreciate everyone who's doing that work. You have to do it. But I think, you know, the, the, the bigger change, the more radical change will be from the customers not buying and making requirements that, that shift the narrative, you know, and from people, you know, shifting what they allow in their jobs, in their communities, what they will be willing to put up with to use services. So I think, you know, it's a broader narrative. We need an AI literate society so that people are empowered to protect themselves and the people they love. So I was going to add one thing, but then she kept going and I think you actually covered it because I, you know, we're talking about long-term sustainable change. And I think this is probably going to come across as basic, but just like if organizations can realize it is long-term, it's not like a six month thing or a three month thing. And then we're good. Like we change the world in six months or a year. It's like, no, the, as long as this product is out in the world, it's, it's going to be, work that continues through that life cycle and lifespan of that product and you know whoever it touches that's still work that needs to continue so i just really wanted to stress the longevity of this work in all of its in all the ways it shows up whether it's in the courts or whether it's in directly in the minds of the people creating it or those who are affected by it i just want to say that is so not a basic point that is fundamental and it is fundamentally misunderstood Thank you very much for bringing that up. Cheers. Thank you all. I don't have much more to add. I believe we've all covered what I think also is necessary to see 
organizations do or work towards for long-term sustainable change. For for me, my personal work for Include and and the impact that we're trying to have, it is all about long-term sustainable change. And it's about creating the relationships that are necessary for the people who are at the center of doing the work to realize that they are within a system. And within that system, there are certain things that they can do. There are levers that they can push. They can, if they want to call it human-centered design, they can focus on human-centered design and bring in more perspectives, even if it's just at one part of the product development lifecycle during the design stage. If they're actually focusing more on liberatory design or society-centered design, then they can think more long-term about the impact, unintended or otherwise, of the products that they're putting out into the world and the people involved in the process of putting out those products. Once they start thinking about that long-term sustainable goal, then we can work backwards to help them figure out what steps can they take to get there? Who's involved in the process? Who's involved in the conversation? What kind of data are they using? What are they considering to be data? What are they considering to be primary critical material that's going to impact the direction that they go in, right? And if they're only talking to their engineers, then we need to actually look at the way we classify engineers. What do we call engineering? And a lot of the work that I, I like to do is to try to get organizations to redefine the title of engineering. When we're building for positive social impact and long-term equitable outcomes, we should be focusing on creating better engineering. Better engineering doesn't have to mean a technical skill. It doesn't have to be just coding. It literally has to encompass your emotional intelligence, your ability to create relationships, your ability to, to be able to empathize and sympathize with other people with different life experiences from you and be able to listen and hear when people are telling you, this is not actually what I need. This is what I need because of ABC reason and XYZ reason. And you're there, you're willing to engage and have, I don't know, a dialogue. So without all of those things, I don't think we can foresee or design um, a better future, a sustainable future for all of us that includes all of us. So. I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Mushika. I want to thank you, Jennifer. I want to thank you, Destiny, for helping us shepherd into existence this first Brave Spaces Roundtable. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a joy, and I've learned so much. So you just, you know, get me on the list, because I'm sure I want to hear all the other conversations. So thank you so much for everyone, for everything that they've shared. It was, it was really interesting to me. Agreed. This was fun. We hang out. Yes. <laughs> like, like offline, you know, with with alcohol and food. With but, alcohol uh, and food. Yeah. No, this was a good time. Thank you. I, I'm I'm intrigued by the series. I'm I'm looking forward to listening to the different conversations you guys have.